1 John chapter 5. We're going to be in the first five verses. First John 5, 1 through 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who, who loves him, who begot, also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Let's pray. Father, in a world that is turned upside down, to know that the only way we overcome is by faith in you is both deeply encouraging and yet profoundly humbling. So help us this morning to see with eyes of faith, not with hearts of skepticism and hearts of coldness toward you, but Lord, to see that in love you've done this. And in love, Lord, you will do this in us and in your people. Lord, for this is our prayer. We ask, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The message for today is entitled, Faith and the Victory of God. And by the way, if I start coughing at any point, I'm not contagious nor am I a closet smoker. But I, yeah, my, you should have heard me earlier in the week. I sounded much worse. But I want to begin today with a bit of an aside. And I, like, I think I like doing this sometimes, but go with me here for a second. In the 1500s, there was a bit of sh- shifting in thinking in, in people, not just Christians, but all across the world. This period is referred to as the Enlightenment The period of time deeply affected the way our generation understands the scriptures and approaches them. This period of the Enlightenment in the 1500s laid a foundation for deep skepticism of our own day. And in broad brushstrokes, I want to sketch out two two commitments that they made. And I think Stephen Wellham did it really well here. This is what he says about it. The Enlightenment, that period in the 1500s, then brought a particular combination of ideas that challenge the validity of the church's confession. Here are the two ideas. He says, the idea that one, human reason is necessary alone, I would add, for human knowledge. And here's the second commitment. The idea that we can make sense of the world without God's personal involvement. Boy, does that sound familiar. Seeds, seeds sown in the 1500s These two commitments have laid the bedrock for a deep misunderstanding of today's text. These two commitments are both demonic and worldly. 
If human reason alone becomes the basis to ground our knowledge, then the Bible only becomes a historical book. If human reason alone is how we come to understand anything, then everything is reduced to naturalism. If God does not have personal involvement with the world, then everything is left to just the scientific method. If God does not have a personal involvement with the world, then we can just remove faith. Take faith away. If everything is determined by human reason and God does not have personal involvement, then religion should just slowly disappear, right? You'd think. You'd think that would be the result. That if human reason alone and God's involvement with the world both dissipate, if human reason is elevated and God's involvement dissipates, you would think faith, well, that's just going to fall away, right? No. That's not at all what has happened. People have not become any less religious since that period. But what has happened is people have placed their faith in the only things they can see. They've put a a lead plate, if you will, over heaven and said, we don't put faith there. We put faith in all the other things we see. So I want to ask three questions today that I hope lead to, and I I use this as an example, just to show you some of the demonic worldviews, some of the demonic worldviews, and not only that, some of the, the war that we fight. It's, it's not a war that, that's used with, with grenades and guns. It's used in a war like this. That human reason is necessary for knowledge alone. Or God's personal involvement, oh, that doesn't happen. In, that doesn't happen in, in the world. So I want to ask three distinctly Christian questions. What is utterly different about a Christian? That's number one. And number two, I want to ask, what makes a Christian distinctively different And then three, how is a Christian able to overcome in a world like this? And if you're taking notes, the, the sermon is literally summarized in those first two sentences. And they say this, by being born again, you are able to exercise faith in Christ, to love God and one another. And then the second, only by faith alone in Christ alone will you overcome the world and its schemes. Now, in 1 John, we've seen John, it seems like he's just like doing donuts around the same ideas. He's doing donuts around love for the brothers. He's doing donuts around faith in Christ. He's, and we come to almost what I would call like the capstone of all those ideas. The, these five verses are the capstone at some level of all these tests in one brief sent, sent, sentence. Listen to what he says. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him, who begot, also loves him who is begotten of him. So let's ask the question, what is utterly different about a Christian? What is utterly different about a Christian? I would contend that first and foremost, what is utterly different about a Christian is that they are born from above. That they are born from above. And that is, I would put it, as the grounds for the victory that anyone is to have. So if you were to ask John, what is a Christian? I think the first thing he would say is, he's born from above. He's born not of this world. He's born from God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Notice the direction of these verses. Look down at your text. This is, I want you to see this. 
So this is not just Daniel saying this. This is what Holy Scripture says. Notice two words in that first sentence. Believes and born. And then notice the tenses of those verbs. So the first one, the believes, is is a present, ongoing belief. But the second, notice, go down to that verse 1, that has been born. Notice, Notice he doesn't say, oh, the faith then produces the new birth. No, no, no. That's not what he says. He says, everyone who believes, that's present, that Jesus is the Christ, has been, that's past, born of God. And now it has an abiding effect. Here's what I want you to see, is that regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration precedes faith. Everyone who believes presently that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And that regeneration precedes faith. Now, regeneration simply is the act of God to make a person born again. This is the first act of God. Belief in Jesus is a consequence. Let's, I want to be very clear. Belief in Jesus is the consequence of the new birth. Now, to be clear, we don't walk around and lift up people's shirt tags and be like, oh, yes. You're one who's born again. <laughs> or we don't walk around and say, oh, that person, they, they have characteristics. They're born again. And we don't walk around with a born again-o-meter and say, oh, well, that one, beep, 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 yep, you're born again. No, 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 no. That's, that's not the intention here. The act of God regenerating a person and believing faith generally, I want to be clear, happen. They generally happen simultaneously. But his intentions here is to show that salvation is primarily an act of God. We are not Christians because we made a decision, though it may feel like it. We are Christians because God has changed our heart. Listen to another place that John says this. But to all, in John, John 1, 12, he says, now look, this, you see the same logic again. And I could, we could picture a hundred different passages up here today, but I want you to see just one. But to all who did receive him, okay, so there's the receiving him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now hold on. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So if you were to ask John, hey John, what's a Christian? He would tell you, he's one who's been born from above. He's one who's been born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let me give you just another one. Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So faith is the instrument, but grace is the unmerited favor of God. Let me give you one implication of what this means for us. If, If regeneration precedes faith... And being born from above is the grounds of our faith, or our victory. Here's what it should do for us. It should be the most humbling reality. A proud Christian should be the most oxymoronic thing you could ever say, ever. You want to know why? Because a Christian is first one who's been born from above. There's been nothing in us done to woo or compel God to love us. 
It means that salvation was first and foremost of sheer grace toward sinners. If you are a believer here today, then you are first and foremost one who's been born again. But I want to consider something. And this is very common. Let's consider if it went the other way for a second. So I'm saying that regeneration, God changing a person, is by his grace, and it happens, it precedes faith. But what happens if we say that faith precedes regeneration? And this is very common. Faith preceding regeneration. Let's just do a thought experiment. This statement would be saying that if a person needs to... This statement would be saying that if a person needs to believe in Jesus in order to be born again. Okay, so so basically it's saying that faith, our exercise of faith, has to happen prior to regeneration. Let me read Ephesians 2, 8 again. It would actually be saying... Here's what Ephesians 2 says. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now it would be saying... For by faith, you have been saved through grace. That's, that's not what it says. And again, you could, we could look at a hundred different passages to do this. It would be saying faith through grace. Ever so slightly, you can change it. You can do that, and you know what it does? It makes regeneration something that we do. It makes, it makes being a Christian something that we first and foremost do. And that's fundamentally wrong. We fundamentally miss it. We fundamentally then say, well, if I have faith, or we're just walking around to people, we'll just have faith. Just have faith. And I'm, I'm not saying that we should, we should walk around just being like, be born again. That doesn't answer the question anymore. But what I'm trying to show here is that salvation is first and foremost a move of God. Which would explain why, when we declare the gospel, people say, I want nothing to do with that. You want to know why? Because they're dead. Because they're dead in their sin. And they need a movement of God in them. Here's the other thing I want you to see in this first section. Is that faith requires an object. Faith requires an object. So let's move on from the thought experiment. Regeneration precedes faith. But faith requires an object. Look in verse 1 again. Everyone who believes... Believes what? Believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Before we go any further, I want to give you a working definition for faith. And to do that, I want to give you Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, 1. Here's faith. And I know faith, faith should be one of those words we just know, right? Well, it's a little more complicated, I think, than that. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, the word there for substance is a really interesting word. And it could be translated as the reality or the realization. But I love how the net translates it. It says this. It says, now faith is being... There should be another passage. I just want want you to see the distinction. Ah, it's not there. That's okay. Now, just listen to it. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for, and being convinced of what we do not see. Another way to say it is that faith is the vehicle by which God saves his children. It's the vehicle of trusting in the Son of God. And the writer of Hebrews says it's pretty important. Listen to what he says in verse 6. And without faith it is impossible to please him. 
For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The object of a person's faith is critically important. And I would argue that every person you've ever met is a person of faith. Though they tell you they're not. Though they tell you, oh, you don't understand. I don't have faith. I believe in reason. Or I, I don't have faith. I, have, I believe in that, that God doesn't work personally in the world. Whatever. Whatever. No, they are a person of faith. It's just their problem is the object they're trusting in is far too weak. Listen to what Stephen Wellham, I love again what he says. He says, we are justified or made right by faith alone because we are justified by the object of faith alone. That it is by the merit of Christ only without which we can have no righteousness whatsoever. We, for we are justified for Christ's sake. Nothing but the merit of Christ can be our righteousness in the sight of God, either as a whole or a part only. We are justified only by believing and receiving the righteousness of another, and not by our own works or merit. The object of our faith is what holds us. We, we just recently, in the last couple of months, went rock climbing. Uh, there was a group of us for Ellie's, Ellie's birthday went, went rock climbing. And I hate heights. I don't know about you. I, I don't like heights at all. And we would get to the top, and it was there while I was rock climbing, which I don't like heights, that they would tell me, all you need to do to get off that wall is just jump. So somebody, somebody that doesn't like heights very much, you get him up very high, and you're like, hey, just, ju- just jump, man. You'll be fine. I was reminded very quickly that it didn't matter how well I fell. It didn't matter how, if, I, if I stumbled off the wall. It didn't matter if I just full-blown leaped off the wall. That the rope is what held me. And it was the object of our faith that held us in the same way. It means that those who love the Father, those who love those who are born of the Father, that Christ is the one who holds them. So I want to ask another question. Let's move on. What makes a Christian distinctively different? Listen to what he says again. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him, who begot, also loves him who is begotten of him. Let me, let me give you another version than that. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Here's what I want you to see in this second section, is that loving God and loving people They are the weapon of choice. That sounds pretty oxymoronic. The weapon of choice for the people of God is love. The logic here, though, in this passage, looks it looks pretty circular at the front end. Listen to what it says in verse 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and keep his commandments. That seems pretty circular. But let me give you this. The logic would be, and this is from uh, 
James Montgomery Boyce, he says the logic would be everyone who loves the parent loves the child. And every Christian is a child of God. Therefore, when we love God, we love our fellow Christians. Okay, so that's the logic. But let me make the logic more clear with an example. So picture Billy. Billy has been living with his girlfriend. He's a Christian. He's been living with his girlfriend for about a year and a half now. He's been coming to church like normal. He goes to Wednesday night Bible study. And his friend Bob, who also goes to church, recently found out about it. But rather than talking to Billy about it, Bob has decided that it would be more loving, quote-unquote, to just wait and let the Spirit convict him, quote-unquote. Now, I'm fearful that a story like this is all too common. That for love's sake, Bob would continue to be silent about his friend's sin. So it's in stories like that, it's in examples like that, that we now hear John's, what he said a little different. And everyone who loves him who begot, or the father, also loves him, the children of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. So it's not just enough to just love one another. It's not just enough to just feel sentimental toward them. Which is why we get loving others by loving God. This next section of loving others by loving God. And that sounds kind of weird to say, but think about it for a minute. Loving others by loving God. Another way to say it is that if we love people well, we will only do so when we love God supremely. The point is simple. We love fellow believers must. We, we love. We must love God first. We love fellow believers when, we, when our love for God is primary. We are not loving fellow believers when we help them disobey God. We are not loving fellow believers when we encourage them, even in our silence, to be disobedient to Christ's commands. We are not loving fellow believers when we are more fearful of losing the relationship than their relationship with Christ. When God's love is primary, then all other friendships and relationships will be able to be loved correctly. When God is loved and obeyed chiefly, then we will truly love our friends, our fellow, our friends and our fellow believers. So our friend Bob here, he needs to hear that he's not really loving Billy. By silently standing by and watching him make a wreck of his life, it is never more loving to allow our brothers and sisters to continue in sin without going after them, ever. And he goes on. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. And he goes on and he says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And John says in another place, If you love me, this is the Lord Jesus speaking, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So we see that love produces, or love and obedience. Love produces obedience. Now, I want to be really clear here. Love is not equal to obedience. Okay? So what I mean by that is they're bound up together, 
but they're distinct. They, they mutually work together, but they're different from one another. If we make the mistake of equating love and obedience, here's my, here's my issue with equating them. The hardworking legalist will use his obe- obedience to prove that he loves God. Let me say that again. If we equate love and obedience, we say, yep, I love God, you don't know why? Because I've kept all his commandments. You know what we end up doing? We act like we can bar-arm God. Oh, Lord, I love you. Look at how I've obeyed you. Or if we make the mistake of equating love and obedience, then every time we fail, we will become fearful that we've somehow fallen out of love. It's important that we see that part of loving God is keeping his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. But here's, here's where he clarifies it in verse 3. And his commandments are not burdensome. In one sweeping statement, John blows out the caverns of simple emotional experience. Because emotional experience wants to say that love is only about how he makes me feel. And John would reply, no, no, no. Love is much more than a feeling. John is showing that the love he has in mind is both practical and active. It's action and truth. And he says in verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So there's the second piece. Obedience, and I use the cannot equal sign, obedience cannot be burdensome. Along with destroying emotional experience, John sweeps the legs out from underneath the hardworking legalist. Because God is not looking for only those who white-knuckle their way to obedience. John's reply would be, you may obey, but you hate the commandments, which show you actually don't love God. And these commands are not to be weighty or heavy for the Christian. Listen to three other places in Psalm 119. I think this is really helpful. Listen to how David describes the commandments or the, the testimonies of God. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Or here's another one. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Or here's another one. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Obedience is never, ever burdensome. Listen to how even Jesus says it in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So notice, the people who are labored and heavy laden are those who aren't coming to him. And he says, take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, I want to be really clear about something. This doesn't mean that obedience is easy. Obedience is not easy. But there's a difference between difficult and burdensome. Here's the, here's the difference. Difficult means it requires us to lean on the Holy Spirit for help. Burdensome means that in the face of God's command, we resent them and we hate him. We groan and complain at the com- commands. Let me give you a real, real world practical example. So let's just pretend you're watching a movie with your family on Friday movie night. Have you heard so many good things about a certain movie? 
And it's a three-hour-long movie, so it's a, it's a commitment. But as you get about an hour and a half in, I mean, it's a, it's a commitment at that point. Hour and a half in, there begins to be scenes of, of nudity. There are other things that you're like, whoa, 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 I did not realize this was a part of the movie. The movie said it was G. What, what is this? Maybe you're sitting there even with your kids. And it's in that moment, you as a parent have a choice. You can turn off the movie or fast forward. And here's the question. This is what John would want to know. In that moment of reaching for the remote, even if your kids aren't there, let's just pretend they're not there, do you groan? Do you say, oh, this is so annoying. Why do I have to do this? I know I shouldn't do this, but why do I have to do this? Do you groan at the thought of obedience? Do you feel as though the taskmaster has asked the impossible of you? Here's the thing. God's commands are never a burden. They are always the freedom that God has given us. Galatians 5.1, he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We will be acutely aware of our failure but we will never resent the commands. And if you find yourself resenting, turn, brothers and sisters. We show our love for God in keeping his commandments. And here's the thing. I think too often, even when we think about even our parenting, parenting or even being around other, other children, you will show your children what you love by what you groan at and what you don't groan at. So if obedience, let's even just take coming to church, for instance. This would never happen, right? That we come to church and we're like, oh, goodness, we have to, we've come for the last however many weeks, 52 weeks out of the year. We groan and we moan. We show, we show our children what we love and what we cherish and what matters. Love is the banner that the church picks up. And it's a banner that says it's not burdensome. Obedience is never burdensome. And love is the weapon of choice that God has given to us. So if you've been born again, then you are able to exercise faith in Christ and love by keeping his commandments. Now I want to look at one last piece. And I want to ask the question, how is a Christian able to overcome in a world like what we've saw today? in a world of secular humanism, in a world that has gone mad, how is a Christian able to overcome? And I recently heard somebody make the observation, and I think it's been a very interesting observation. Just watch the way in a movie or a show that evil is presented. Evil is almost always presented. And I love the example with Batman. I like Batman. But the Joker. Think about the Joker for a second. That guy is one man. He's, he's one dude. With, with, I know he's weird. He's got a lot of things. But he's literally one man. But look at the way that evil is presented from the, from, from the watching world. You know what they, how they present evil? The Joker, one man, can literally blow up buildings all by himself. He, he's just so smart and so wise. He's almost sovereign at some level. And evil is presented in such a way that it's almost omnipotent. 
It's everywhere. It's all powerful. They know your moves before you even know your moves. That is the way that the natural man thinks about the power of evil. Is it's uncontrollable. And to the unregenerate man, it is uncontrollable. You know why even watch just watch movies. Again, not just Batman, look at every movie that evil is presented. It's like the it's like the bad guys have literally sovereign power. And the reason why they're presented in that way is because to the unregenerate and the natural man, it is. The person who's not been born of God has no ability to resist the evil one. Listen to what he says in verses 4 and 5. He says, for everyone, or for, the NKJV says, for whatever, but I would point you to the ESV that says, for everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So the last section is faith that overcomes. Victory in Jesus. Faith that overcomes. Victory in Jesus. Now I want to be clear about something. To have faith does not mean that our situation will get better in a temporal sense. Listen to the way the writer of Hebrews even describes the, the hall of faith. Literally, you have that Hebrews 11 passage, which is the hall of faith. Listen to how he describes men of faith. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. So faith does not mean, oh, well, my life will get better now. Overcoming doesn't mean my life gets better now in the temporal sense. Because it sure didn't for these guys. But listen to how he describes them in verse 38. Of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. Because here's the thing about the Christian. Faith is the thing that brings the victory. And what we see is faith as the victory. So how is the Christian able to overcome this world? It's by faith. Faith as the victory. Again, overcoming here is the fruit of the fact that a person has been born again. Notice that John is not emphasizing here in verse 4. He says, for everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. He doesn't say, Look at that person. Look how great that person is. And, and too often, I think, we can, we can look at a person of faith and think how great they are, how marvelous they are. But notice what he emphasizes. He's emphasizing the victorious power. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory of the world over, over, that has overcome the world. Our faith. So John's emphasizing the victorious power within us. It's not that we are great, but the one who's taken us from the realm of Satan into the realm of light is the overcomer. Listen to then how Hebrews says later on. It says, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. That is where our victory comes. It doesn't come from, from worldly means. It doesn't come from any other thing in us. It's not the rider and his horse that overcomes. It is only faith in Christ. 
Trusting in his resurrection. Trusting in his finished work, which will be credited to us. Not even trusting in our own faith. Notice this. It's not even trusting in our own faith. But it's trusting him. But listen to what he goes on and says. One last thing. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This last section is victory over the world. The term world here has been seen elsewhere in the book of John. It refers to, to all of everything that's opposed to God and his kingdom. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And I, I found an example I thought was very, very fitting. I once heard a story of the war in Japan during the Second World War. Uh, on, on September 2nd, 1945, a formal surrender, if you know the story, a formal surrender was signed on the bo- board of the USS Missouri, designating the day as the official victory over Japan Day. Now, the war in Japan, if you don't know anything about it, it was very brutal. Years of hard fighting. And some soldiers who were hidden in tunnels, that is, of the Japanese, they hidden, hidden tunnels and in the ground. They didn't hear of surrender. So even as U.S. soldiers continued to confront Japanese soldiers, the war was over. The war was finished. But the war also raged on. In the soldiers that continued to fight. And brothers and sisters, it is the same of the Christian life. Christ has already won the victory. He has already won the war. The war is over. And yet, in a very temporal sense, the war still rages on. The way of the Christian, the way they overcome, is the same way that Christ overcame. It's by faith. Listen to what Calvin goes on and says. I think it's very helpful. He says, having such a force to contend with, we have an immense war to carry on. And we should have, all, have been already conquered before coming to the conquest. And we should be conquered a hundred times daily had not God promised to us the victory. But God encourages us to fight by promising us the victory. If you just read through the hall of faith, what you'll see is men and women who their entire lives... Noah, you think about Noah. Noah built an ark for a hundred years. He looked like a fool. He sat in the boat for seven days while no rain happened. He looked like an utter fool. And yet by faith he believed what God had said. And brothers and sisters, we look like utter fools. Right now. (laughs) Even in this moment. But by faith. We come, we obey what God has said because by faith we know we will overcome. I love what, what, if that last quote, don't forget this. You get nothing else from today, get this. Christians don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. We fight as ones who've already overcome in Christ, who are already counted as righteousness in the blood of Jesus. We fight as ones who've already conquered. It's only by faith alone in Christ alone that we will overcome the world and its schemes. Christians don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. I want to give us now a time of response. 
And maybe you've been really struggling as you, as you look at the, the scene of our world. Maybe you haven't been struggling. I want to just conti- consider, I want you to consider how the Lord may be prompting you to respond. Take just a minute and respond in any way the Lord's prompting you. Father, we confess that we too often, just like the world, respond like the world. Picking up other weapons rather than the weapon that you have declared is ours, which is faith. The, 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 the shield of faith. The sword of the word. Forgive us, Father, for picking up other weapons. For, for doubting the fact that we will find our overcomingness, our victory in your victory. Would you grant us, we pray, repentance now to respond in faith, to trust and believe what you have done on our behalf. God, we give this to you knowing that you are the one who will do it one day. Ultimately, you will right every wrong. And in the meantime, Lord, may we by faith walk. We pray, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This concludes-